Amen. We're going to dive right in because we have a lot that I want to uh, get through, a lot that I want to cover here today, and, uh, and I want to make sure that, um, that, that we're honoring of our time. So I'm just going to get right after. Last week, uh, by way of, of Adam's message, the author of Hebrews, we're in our, we're in our, obviously if you're just joining us, we're in our summer scripture series. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews for the last, I think, I think this is the 10th week, so we've been going through it for a little while. And uh, we bit off a little more than we can chew. There's no possible way we're finishing this book before the end of summer. Uh, and so we'll, we'll see. I think we, we may come back to it. We'll, we might pause and come back to it a little bit later. Uh, we may just keep going. I don't know. As the Lord leads us, we'll, we'll just respond in kind. But we'll, uh, we'll definitely be finishing Hebrews. It's just we'll, we're not sure when. It might not be during the context of summer. Um, but but last, last week, by, by sort of by way of Adam's message, the author of Hebrews introduced us to a topic that's going to take up a good bit of space here in the middle of this book, uh, the, the letter to the Hebrews, and, and, and that is the nature and importance of, of Jesus as our, as our heavenly high priest. All right, he introduced that topic, and this is going to be the topic of conversation for the next couple of chapters. Uh, so, so going back to last week's message and the, and the first part of, of Hebrews chapter 5, um, the author has just told us that Jesus is a high priest after an obscure order of priests, uh, one with actually only a single recorded member in all of the Old Testament, uh, but one also with a strange and sort of obscure promise attached to his name in the Psalms. And so this is a very, interest, this is very interesting. Uh, re- remember, we mentioned that all of the high priests in the Old Testament came from the lineage of Aaron. All of them were from the same lineage except for one, Melchizedek, and then later, Jesus. And, and, and I think the author of Hebrews is, is honestly excited to sort of unravel this like 700-year-old uh, mystery of, of Psalm 110, chapter 110, verse 4, which is where this interesting promise and mention of Melchizedek is, is found. But before he can, something forces him to almost take a, a chapter-long detour in a new direction. So he's introduced it. He's set it up. He's given you the premise. He, he's, he's, he started his term paper, but right here on page two, he's stopping before he gets into the meat of what he's doing, and he, he, there's something that gives him pause. He wants to focus on a different topic. What could be so important as to grab the author's attention away from Jesus as our ultimate final high priest from the order of Melchizedek? What is it? If I could just oversimplify it for us up front here before we get into the details. The issue is that the recipients of the book, the the readers and the hearers of the letter to the Hebrews, are babies. And he wants to have a grown-up conversation. Okay? They They are spiritual babies, and he's wanting to get into some advanced topics. So, so that's, what, that's, what we're, that's what we're talking about here. That's what we're seeing in the lens of our passage here today. One, one thing that, that every one of us had in common as children is that we cannot wait to grow up, right? We couldn't wait to grow up. When we were little, we wanted to be a big kid. When we were kids, we wanted to be teenagers. When we were teenagers, we wanted to be treated like adults. Now that we're adults, many of us want to go backwards, right? Like... Let me go back to those teen years when I had no responsibility and my body worked correctly, right? Like, that's, that's what we want. 
But we all wanted to grow up. We all had the same desire to grow up, to progress, to move forward, to grow. You know, our kids, we've got a couple in here today. Our kids are always looking at the next one to see what they, uh, to see, to see what they get to do next. One point of contention in our house is chewing gum. We made a rule uh, that you couldn't chew gum until you're five years old. And you may think that's a dumb rule. And, and, and if you do, then you clearly have not cleaned gum out of carpet or the car floor or some other kid's hair. Okay, so that's the rule. That's our rule in our house. you got to be five years old. And Naomi was thrilled when she hit five years old that she could finally chew gum. And she was looking forward to it. Now, Levi's looking forward to it because he's going to be five and just gosh, I guess like a month or so, and uh, so he's looking forward to it, and he's excited, and they're always look. they want to grow, they want to move on, they want to move forward, because things change when we grow and mature. Our kids all uh, suck their thumbs. That was just something that, that they did, but as they grow and mature, they stop. I used to be in student ministry, and, and it was one of the, the joys of my life to watch students go from 6th grade to 12th grade, and watch them just mature and just experience their their growth and their maturity along the way. Incredibly special. Physically, we grow up. Mentally, we grow up. And the author of Hebrews is arguing in our passage that we're going to look at today that spiritually, we need to grow up. So let's go ahead and look at our text uh, in Hebrews, starting at 5.11. If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, we're going to be in uh, Hebrews, the end, of, the end of chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6, uh, here this morning. So we're going to uh, read the text in its entirety, and then we're going to kind of go through and talk about it a little bit. So starting in chapter 5, verse 11, this is the word of the Lord. It says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Chapter 6, verse 1, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Come on, somebody. I know that this passage right here is kind of hitting somebody between the eyes this morning. I know, I know it's, it, somebody's feeling a little inadequate after experiencing this word. And I know somebody needed to hear that, and I know that somebody didn't want to hear that. Sharper than any double-edged sword, would you pray with me? Lord, would you use your words to penetrate our hearts this day? Not our physical hearts, but God, our, our very souls. Cut through to our core so that we can see our deficiencies. And then, good Father, set us on a path of righteousness as only you can do. Have your way in this house today. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message this morning is Grow Up. And look, I know what you're thinking. Depending on how you say that phrase, it can be kind of offensive. It can hurt my feelings. It can rub you the wrong way. 
Like when your friend is whining about laws or restrictions or about having to wear a mask and you hit them with a, just grow up. Just grow up, come on. Or, or if you can remember back when you're younger and, and you want to do something outside of the rules, but your little sibling tries to convince you not to, and you hit them with a, grow up. Come on, this is, this is it, grow up. So when I say that the title of this message today is grow up, do I mean for it to chastise you or remind you? Do I mean for it to be exhorting or encouraging? Am I trying to rebuke you or redirect you? And the answer to those questions is yes. Because that's what the original author, the preacher that brought these words to the Hellenistic Jewish Christians, that's how he approached this. And so let's get into it. Let's get into the word. Verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Okay, so the first part of this, do you, I hope you see what I mean by the, the author's eagerness to talk more about Jesus as, as the greatest and last high priest. Because he says, about this we have much to say. He's referring to what we went through last week. He's, he's looking back at the passage just before this. He's saying, he, he's saying we, you know, we're talking about Jesus being the high priest from the order of Melchizedek. There is a doctrinal feast ready to be laid out for the Hebrews and for us, but there is an obstacle, something that makes him pause right in the middle of his conversation. And this obstacle is going to make it hard to get the food on the table the right way. The topic of Jesus' high priesthood is apparently something that is, that is deep and that is transformative, okay? And he wants to deliver that in the right way. It's something that's worth a few chapters of Scripture and for us to, to biblically meditate on. But the doctrinal immaturity of the Hebrew Christians is making this rich feast one that is very difficult to serve. He says, about this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain. Why? Because you have become dull of hearing. I'm not sure how many of you know this about me, but I really enjoy a good steak. I, I guess I didn't eat like a lot of steak uh, growing up, but my wife loves steak. And so she has converted me to a steak eater. Uh, and now I am a big fan, but not just any steak, though. I have expensive tastes. Filet mignon and New York Strip are the ones that really hit the spot for me. And, and there's a very specific way that I cook them. Okay, you got to get the cast iron pan hot enough so that when the steak hits it, it just sets off the smoke alarms in the house. Like, you got to get it real hot, just screaming hot. Right? And then you're going to cook it for two to three minutes on both sides. You guys can take notes. I, I, I know you might want to take notes on this. This is good stuff. All right, uh, nothing but sea salt and fresh ground pepper to season. Then you're going to toss a dollop of Kerrygold Irish butter on top, and you're going to put it in the oven to finish for about four minutes until the temperature is about 140 degrees. Then, this is very key, you've got to let it rest for 10 minutes. Very important. It's going to give you a perfectly juicy medium, medium rare steak. Now, I'm working on my kids to help them appreciate a good steak. But, but let me tell you, the first time we diced up like this, this big hunk of buttery, medium rare, salt crusted steak and put it down in front of the kids, they were not as enthusiastic as I kind of hoped they would be. One of them even had the audacity to complain about the fat that this strange meat seemed to have on it. 
They didn't appreciate the marbleization of my steak. They've since repented, and they like steaks now. <laughs> but, wh- but why do I tell you that? They didn't have the tools yet to appreciate the feast. Let me say that one more time. They didn't have the tools to appreciate the feast. It was an obstacle. How, how much more if I tried to put that feast in front of a baby? Right? Like Lindsay was up here singing. They have a 15-month-old uh, baby. What, what if I gave him a steak? It, he has no teeth. He wouldn't know what to do with the thing. And, and that's the problem, church. The Christians to, to whom this letter is addressed were doctrinal babies. And the author had a big, juicy, doctrinal fillet sizzling in the skillet that he was ready to plop down on their plates, but they couldn't handle it yet. He wants them to grow up. Not only that, but they had become that way. They didn't start out like that. Notice the word says that they had become dull. When you first come to Christ, and I can only speak from my experiences and and that which I have seen personally in others, but you are excited to learn these fresh new truths. You almost can't get enough and you want to learn more. Your zeal for the Lord is so new and exciting. Maybe you remember those days. And maybe it seems like a distant memory now. Because after the newness dies down, so does often our listening. Spurgeon, uh, he said, off go the wonder hunters. Folly brought them and folly removes them. Babies must have new toys. And how true is that for us as a, as a people, as a society? It's always off to the new thing, the new toy, the new experience. And, and listen, listen to me, church. I came to tell somebody today that, that this is not the way that we are to treat the word of God and our relationship with Jesus. Come on, somebody. This, this is, he, he is exhorting us right now, the author of Hebrews. We need to grow Many of you have a, uh, a measuring stick in your house. I brought mine with me. Many of you might have a measuring stick in your house or your grandparents' house. Uh, maybe you don't use a stick. Maybe you use like a, a door frame. I know that's like pretty popular. Um, but, but it measures, you know, the kids as, as they get older, as they grow up. The kids, the grandkids, or maybe you're young enough to where it just measured you. You don't have kids yet, and, and you can, but you can remember going through something like this where, where you wanted to get up here and you wanted to put your back, see how much you had grown, see how, see how, how taller you are and, and how much taller you are than your siblings or your cousins or whoever. And, and, and that's a point of pride because now you're the, you know, you're the top one, you're the top mark. And, and, this, and this is ours. It shows us that we're growing. It shows growth. And I bring this up because if you're growing, that's normal. It's normal for that progress to show. We've got Ainsley, uh, Naomi is down here, I think. Levi has, has jumped her. The line should continue moving upward. But wouldn't it be alarming if this line started moving down? That'd be really weird, right? Ainsley, would that be weird? Next time you get up to measure yourself if you were here, but now you're down here? That'd be strange, right? We, we, it would be alarming if the lines are moving down. Our, our, if the kids being measured here started shrinking, that would be weird. 
We'd be moving in the wrong direction, you understand? And that's essentially what the author is seeing in his congregation. That's essentially what the author is seeing here is that the line is beginning to move down. The line is, there's negative growth. We're growing in the wrong direction. So his response is to issue a loving pastoral rebuke. Hopefully, church, you have a capacity for that, for for the correct, loving, shepherd-hearted rebuke of a faithful pastor. There is absolutely such a thing as a pastor who needs to tone down his exhortations, to stop beating up the sheep. I've, I've sat under a pastor like that where everything was doom and gloom, exhort and rebuke. But the pastorate is also not a place for men who are unwilling to rebuke when necessary. So there are four parts to this rebuke, four ways that they need to grow up and four ways that we need to grow up. And I think it's going to help us to understand this text and to rightly respond to it. Number one, he says that they are dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. So about this we have much to say. It's hard to explain. But since you have become dull of hearing, the dullness of hearing that he's talking about uh, is specifically, in this context, a dullness to hear the scriptures. All right, these are Hebrew Christians. Christians who, who not only have the apostolic teaching of the New Testament, uh, which, which as they read this letter was still being written and circulated to be read in churches all over, but they also have the Old Testament scriptures as well. They knew the Bible. Or, or they should have. What is dullness of hearing with respect to God's word? Dullness is what happens when the word of God is allowed to become routine. And when it becomes routine, it starts to get tuned out. And then eventually ignored altogether. It's like right now, you've been sitting in this room for 30 or 40 minutes, and most of you have no conscious awareness anymore that the air conditioning is blowing cold air into the theater. Right? You've, you've tuned that out. Right? Your brain is very good at that, at focusing its attention on what it deems at the moment to be the most essential, the most important like sensory input. And, and listen, that's essential. Otherwise, you'd never be able to do what you're doing right now. You'd never be able to sit here and listen to a sermon because instead you'd be thinking about something weird and crazy like the way your toes feel inside of your shoes. Which now that I say that, maybe, <laughs> how do my toes feel? That's curious. Dullness of hearing is what happens when we begin to tune the voice of God in his word into the background. It's what happens when we make many, mostly small, decisions about what is the most important thing for me to meditate on, for me to think about, and for me to obey day to day. When we let the scriptures become a vague hum in the background of our lives, it's really not long before we start ignoring them altogether. So dullness is what happens uh, when, when I read a large chunk of scripture at the beginning of this message and we let our minds go into autopilot rather than drinking in the words, considering them, listening to them, and obeying them. Or when we simply stop striving to chew on and obey and ingest the word of God at our own houses during the week. Listen, church, this is a powerful rebuke from the preacher here. The word dull is only uh, used here in all of the New Testament, and it means sluggish and lethargic. So they were sluggish in the ears. What are you trying to say, pastor? They were lazy. Look at your socially distant neighbor and shout lazy. They, they weren't, and listen to me, they weren't naturally dull in hearing. 
that, that this, wasn't, uh, this wasn't something they were born with. They, they became that way. They listened with the attentiveness of a slug. They had become unreceptive, closed off. I want you to understand something, church. They were hearing. They were showing up to church. They were sitting in on sermons. But that was the problem with the Hebrew Christians is they were hearing but not completely, not obediently. Are we like them? That's a rhetorical question. I mean, honestly, we have the same issues in, in our culture today, right? The church today isn't filled with people looking for a rich theological feast and, and, and a sharp hearing of God's word. It's filled with people living in doctrinal famine. And, and selective deafness. It's filled with people that would rather take their social positions from social media than from the heart of the Lord. It's filled with people that get their spiritual substance from sound bites and quote graphics uh, instead of the word of God. It's filled with people that listen to every other talking head in the country except for the one whose voice actually matters, that of Jesus. Come on, somebody. You, you might not like this train of thought, but you know it's true. Our churches sometimes fill more like theological deserts than abundant spiritual feasts. Because we're lazy. Our listening is dull, sluggish, lethargic. The church in America, I believe, is on the brink of apostasy. It's a fancy word that means that we're abandoning our first love. We're abandoning the gospel. Number two, he rebukes them because they are doctrinal and spiritual babies. He says this in uh, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have, had, who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is uh, what I would consider in this day a sick burn. All right? He's, he's, he's hitting them like right between the eyes. He's, he's hitting them hard. Now, obviously, there was no baby formula in these days. When we talk about milk, we're talking about actual milk straight from the source. Straight from the mama that birthed them. And listen, I'm not going to get into when you're supposed to wean your kids off of breast milk today. I have my opinions, but I also don't birth children to feed them from my body. But let me tell you, they are living on milk far past when it is good and proper to do so. They are like overgrown spiritual babies. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a doctrinal baby, a spiritual baby? He gives two signs to watch out for. The first sign of a spiritual baby is one who is unskilled in the word of righteousness. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, he says. Just as babies say, goo goo gaga, before they can quote Shakespeare by heart, so spiritual babies are unskilled in God's word. This is another way of saying, very simply, they don't know their Bibles, right? Which implies that the Bible is a thing that takes skill to use correctly. Did you catch that? You have to grow up into this book. 
A child can open it, and God will, will wonderfully simply meet them right where they're at. He's a good, good father, and he meets us where we are when we first come to him. My kids hear and they understand as we read together at home. But as you grow up, you need to grow up in your understanding and work in this book. Church, this takes hard work. It takes practice. It takes dedicated study. This requires you to listen uh, carefully, to evaluate your worldview and, and, and your, your presuppositional lenses that you take with you into the reading of this book. It takes meditation and humble submission to good teachers. It takes obedience. Obedience. This is ultimately how we graduate from milk to meat. Obedience. You, you take what you learn here and you apply it to your life and then you repeat the process tomorrow. It's when we go from Bible study to Bible obedience. The original audience was unskilled in these things. The second sign of a spiritual baby that he, he mentions here, uh, according to this passage, is one who is not practicing discernment by learning to distinguish good from evil. Church, I want you to catch this because this is a good distinction to make because someone uh, who maybe knows a lot of facts about the Bible might still be light years from being doctrinally mature. Can I say that again for somebody who needs to hear it? You might know a lot of facts about the Bible but still be very far from being doctrinally mature. I'm going to help somebody and I'm going to offend somebody today. But there is a difference between doctrine as theological data and applied lived theology. The doctrinally mature Christian isn't one who just knows a lot of stuff. It's not uh, just a guy who reads a lot of John Piper or a Tozer. I'm all for that, but that's not everything. To be spiritually, doctrinally mature, the author of Hebrews wants us to see, it means having our powers of discernment, the word says, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So you can quote scripture. Great. What does it mean? How does it apply? What, what does the word of God tell us about politics, uh, about parenting, about living in the midst of a cancel culture? What is the godly path in the middle of a work conflict? How can I counsel my, my dad in loving my mom through dementia or cancer or some other debilitating disease? What does doctrinal maturity look like when my friend is caught in a habitual sin? You see the difference, church? There are doctrinal parrots that may be able to repeat theology all day long. But if they aren't applying it, if it's not coming out of their fingertips and coming out of their mouths into the real world, what good is it? Maturity is not, is not just knowing things. I don't even know where I'm at now. The Hebrew Christians were doctrinal babies because of their powers of discernment to actually look into the world and, and, and discern what is good and what is not. It was the, the, they were weak in that way. So they were spiritual babies. Here's the third way he rebukes them. They weren't building on the foundation. 
Let's, let's switch over to chapter 6 for a second. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So there is uh, this thing that the author calls the elementary doctrine of Christ. Uh, that they should have left by now and moved on to maturity. And before we make the biggest mistake that we could probably make in this, though, let me make sure that we get this critical distinction right. By leaving this doctrine, the author of Hebrews doesn't mean that we move beyond it. As if the basic doctrine of Christ is something that we somehow grow out of, but that we build on it. Notice what he calls these basic doctrines. He calls them a foundation Warren Wiersbe said the ABCs of the Christian life are important, but they must be a launching pad, not a parking lot. That's so crucial. Because uh, what we're not trying to do as we grow from being spiritual babies into spiritual men or women is to leave Christ behind and move on to something beyond Christ. No, it's all Christ. It's more of Christ. Doctrinal maturity cannot move beyond Christ because Paul tells us in his letter to the Colossians, not only that Jesus Christ is all of the fullness of the Godhead pleased to dwell, but also that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all Jesus. What that means is that there is not one iota, one particle of wisdom, truth, doctrine, or anything that is not to be found in Christ. Doctrinal maturity doesn't mean it's not advancing past Christ, it's building on Christ. And so the picture here is of, of a house with a, with a foundation. Okay, the, the foundational doctrines are those that hold up the structure above. Just as you don't start building a house by putting the shingles on first, you don't Start your theological discipleship by settling the dispute between Arminianism and Calvinism. We start by getting the whole Christian thing right first. The author tells us that these foundational doctrines, and I don't, I don't think this list is meant to be exhaustive here. I think he's just trying to give some examples. They include a couple of doctrines. They include the doctrine of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. This is the gospel. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the work of Christ and, and his work alone, not on our own dead works or, or, or in our own keeping of the law. He talks about instruction about washings or, or, or baptisms. This may either be a reference uh, to the issue of these Jewish Christians, uh, of how they think about ceremonial washings of the old, the old covenant era. He might be hearkening back to that, which comes up a little bit later in this letter. Or he may be referring to the difference between the baptism of John uh, and the baptism of Jesus. Either way, the, this foundational issues. The laying on of hands. Again, this may either reference the laying on of hands, which would occur uh, in the Old Testament by a priest as he, as he imparted, as he, as he took the sins of, of the people and transferred them to the, the lamb that was to be slaughtered. Um, and, and so it could be referring to that, the sacrificial animal, or it could be the laying on of hands uh, to ordain biblically qualified elders. It's another one of uh, Paul's points. And so either way, found foundational issue. He talks about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Here is the basic hope of a Christian. That our bodies are not like husks that will just be blown away in the wind when we die, but, but seeds planted in hope of fruit. That we will be raised bodily to immortal life by the Lord Jesus in his coming. And to eternal judgment, that those outside of the covenant of grace will be raised, but not to eternal life, but to eternal judgment. These doctrines are, are, are part of the foundation of the house. But you don't lay a foundation 
and then leave. You lay a foundation to build. And so here's the question for you, church. Are you building? Are you adding doctrinal wall studs and plumbing and drywall and paint and furniture to your theological house? Are you refusing to be content with a bare foundation? How, how's, your, how's your Bible reading going, church? How's your Bible reading going? What's your plan to live in this book and, and, and know this book and search out its treasures and make them your own? Oh, I want to dive so much deeper, but we got to go. Okay. Finally, he rebukes them, uh, number four, and we've already touched on this a little bit. Uh, they have, they've had plenty of time. It's like you guys have had so much time. Let's look back at Hebrews 5.11. Uh, about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Now, I need you to understand something. We're not talking about new Christians here. You don't rebuke a new Christian for not being fully mature, for not having a robust understanding of doctrine. The one thing uh, this text means is that there is such a thing as a Christian with whom we should be very patient and understanding and slow and gentle with, the new believer. Just as you wouldn't spank a three-month-old baby for not being able to tie his own shoes, you shouldn't rebuke a new Christian for getting something wrong or, or needing basic training. Is this helping somebody? I've seen sound, seasoned Christians go off on new Christians in Bible studies and in other settings for saying something that was way off base. And I want to caution, that on, caution us on that church. New Christians say some crazy stuff sometimes. Sometimes they say something, and you hear it, and you're like, ooh, that's probably heresy. Like, but my caution to us is just to slow down. Be gentle. Try not to fix the doctrine of new believers in one conversation. This takes gentleness and humility, not a flamethrower approach. Understand that. But here's the issue. The spiritual maturity that we're talking about in this text has nothing to do with time. There are many in the church today that are the equivalent of a 29-year-old who cannot tie his shoes. I'm just being real. The author says that they should have been teachers by now. That's a strong statement. Since we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that not many should seek to be teachers because all teachers will be judged more strictly. Teachers are responsible to handle high theology with a clean conscience and a ready mind. And that's where the Hebrew Christians should have been. That means it wasn't that they didn't have enough time. Let me ask you this. Have you been a Christian for a decade, yet you can't tell me where in the Bible we're taught that Jesus is God? That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, to God's glory alone? That, that humans are in bondage to sin and helpless without grace? I'm not trying to be legalistic. I just, I just need you to hear me. What, what passages have you committed to memory? What disciplines have you instituted in your own life to know the scriptures, to, to, to systematically learn it, to hide it in your heart, to pray without ceasing? 
If, if you have been a Christian for 5, 10, 15 years and you haven't read through the Bible at least a couple of times, four or five times, but, but you've watched all nine seasons of The Office like eight times, what's your excuse? Can I step on a, some toes a little bit today? If, if you don't have time to engage with the Word of God, but you have time to scroll Instagram for two hours a day, then it's clear that time is not the issue. You can insert whatever hobby and activity you want to in that. This is the issue that the author of Hebrews is addressing. Spiritual immaturity that has more to do with the dullness of hearing, the hardness of heart, the laziness of hand than it does with needing more time. Do you see how these issues really find their connection in the knowledge and the love of the word of God? That's it, right? Like, that's the, that's the needful thing. Do you want to be mature? Do you, do you want to be able to uh, discern good from evil? Do you want to be able to teach others and help others mature? Then, then, then I encourage you to, to love and live in this book. It's all here, church. And, and can I also just qualify that? I am not discrediting any other form of communication with the Lord in this sermon, but I felt the Lord teaching me and stretching me in this this week, and so this is what I came to share with you today. Church, it's time for many of us to grow up. And so this brings me to the most important point in the sermon as we're wrapping up here. It's what do we do with it? What do we do with this? What do we do with this rebuke? I mean, this, this comes as a, a blistering. Th listen, this rebuke wrecked me in all the right ways this week. This comes as a blistering pastoral rebuke. I'm talking 100 proof, serve neat, no escape routes, no qualifications for us to hide behind. And I think we all know that this rebuke lands at the very heart of, 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 of the, the church's current sin. So how will we deal with this critical rebuke? Will we receive it as a grace of God? Part of his love for us, receive it by faith and walk in repentance? Or will we get defensive? And, and shrug it off as the angry rantings of a pastor who's been stuck inside his house for the last four months. So let me do this. Let me leave you with some practical encouragement. Because you've got to decide on your own where this rebuke is going to take you. How you're going to move forward. How you're going to move from milk to meat. How you're going to grow in your walk with Christ. But let me just give you a few things. Because I, th I think if this pastoral rebuke hits you today, first you need to respond in faith. Understand that you are not justified by your theological knowledge. And you need to go to the throne of grace for mercy and help. And then I'm, I'm going to point you to four very simple, ordinary practices to begin growing up into maturity. Let me give you, let me give you one. Be here every Sunday. And if you can't be here due to COVID, join us online. That's fine. Not, listen, not twice a month, not when it's convenient for me, not when the weather is nice. The, the Lord has given myself, Pastor Jordan, the elders, the duty to, to feed you on the word of God. When we stand back and we prayerfully craft uh, these weekly gatherings, we are trying to lay a feast before you every week. 
We want you to look at what is served here week in and week out. Uh, the way that you look at a big platter with, with a, a huge dry-aged 15-ounce New York strip steak on it, served with the kind of mashed potatoes that has a stick of butter in it before it hits your plate. You know what I'm saying? That's why you, you need to look at this in that way. Some weeks I know we fall short. But the table is set out every single week. Here's my exhortation. Come eat. Don't starve. Don't settle, church. Don't settle for a bottle of milk. Let's dig into it. Be here. Be engaged. Be involved. Number two, get into a missional community. I'm just giving you some practical things that, that, I, could, that I thought of off the top of my head that I believe the Lord laid on me, but, but it can be very different for you. Get in a missional community. We believe that ministry happens better in circles than in rows. We have some great options with you uh, for you to connect with other people and grow in your faith and your understanding of the word. And, and, and let me just share this. I, I know we're really low on time. Uh, but our elders and staff have identified discipleship as a, as a general weakness in our church right now. And we are working to provide more groups that will teach doctrine next semester. But we need you to commit to, to joining one to growing with us in that. Number three, cultivate a love for reading, especially, especially for the word. Be in it daily. I, this seems like a Sunday school answer. This seems like some basic stuff. Come to church, join a small group, be, get in the word. I get it, I know. This is, uh, we hit you with a rebuke and now we're giving you like just some easy things. But, but it, sometimes it is that easy. And that's why the pastor, the author in Hebrews is so angry. That's why he's rebuking them with righteous anger. Is He's like, guys, it's not that hard. It's right here. We've laid it out for you. We're serving up this feast. Come eat. Even if you don't understand everything you read. And when you have Bible reading, uh, when you have your rhythms down, and, and Bible reading is such a rhythm situation, you got to get into a good rhythm. When you have that rhythm down, ask uh, me or the elders or your, or, your, or your Sunday serve team leader, and we can give you some good books to read outside of the scriptures as well. And here's the fourth thing. Leave some things behind. I don't know if you knew this, but lobsters have to leave their shells in order to grow. So, so they molt up to ten times a year. They, they need their shell to protect them from being torn apart. Yet when they grow, the old shell must be abandoned. They have to leave it behind. If they didn't abandon it, then the old shell would become their prison and eventually their casket. The, the tricky part for the lobster is the brief period of time for, when the old shell is discarded and as the new shell kind of comes into place and the new shell is, is formed. And during this like crazy, vulnerable period, the transition must be so scary to the lobster. I don't know if lobsters feel fear, but I'm going to assume they do. Because they know that there are hungry fish out there that are ready to just eat them and make them a part of their food chain. For a while at least, to that lobster, the old shell probably looks pretty good. Maybe he wants to go back to that old shell. Let me go hide under that for a while. And our... I don't believe that we're very different from lobsters in this way. To change and grow, we must sometimes shed our shells. 
Maybe it's a structure or a framework we've depended on. Listen, discipleship means being so committed to Christ that when he bids us to follow, we will change, risk, grow, and leave our shells behind. Are you willing to leave some things behind to move from milk to meat? To, to move from being a spiritual baby to a mature believer? Are you willing to leave some things behind to grow Let me pray for us. God, we love you so much, and we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for how how you can just, in the the most timeliest of manners, speak into our very hearts and our very lives, and that you can can wreck us in all of the right ways, God. I am believing right now, God, that your word is going to have an impact in this church that what we've talked about today will will bear fruit in the lives of many people. And so, God, I just pray right now that you would remind us of these words, not my words, but your word. Tomorrow, when we get frustrated about going to work. Tuesday, when we get frustrated about having to wear a mask to the grocery store. Wednesday, whenever our kids do something and, get, and it makes us angry. Thursday, when we realize that we've gone all week and we've already forgotten to, to, to read the word and to do the things that we just said we were going to do. Remind us. Rebuke us. Exhort us. Open us up to our very cores and show in us our deficiencies so that We would not be discouraged, but encouraged in how much we need you and how much you do for us in your grace and in your mercy. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.